Hi, welcome to the Murthy Lock Firm Telephone Conference Series. It is wonderful to have so many of you with us this afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, the founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm, and along with me I have two of my brilliant attorneys, whom I'm sure many of you have had the opportunity to either interact with and consult with in various conferences, uh, consultations, and in prior telephone conferences. Uh, we have both attorney Aaron Finkelstein, the assistant managing attorney of the Murthy Law Firm, who has been doing extensive work uh, in the labor certification perm department and practically in every area, including in the investigations and compliance issues. And Pam Janice, who's pretty much the supervising attorney of the Green Card Labor Certification Perm Department and has also been working extensively with setting up the systems and policies and procedures for the audits for Department of Labor LCA compliance issues. So with this incredible powwow team that we have here, um, we would get, I thought we would get started with talking about the compliance and audit records, DOL investigations, H1s. But before we do that, I do want to remind everybody that these monthly teleconference calls are copyrighted material and copyrighted information of the Murthy Law Firm. Therefore, no recording of any sort is permissible um, for you. And if you wish to ever record it, you do need to get prior written permission from the Murthy Law Firm. Um, we certainly expect you to help and cooperate with us so you don't violate the law here again. Um, and without further ado, let's get started. What I thought I would do is give a very brief five-minute or so introduction on generally the LCA process. I know most of you as employers that process H-1 petitions for H-1B workers file and sign a whole bunch of forms. Uh, including the labor condition application when you file your H-1 petition. You all know it's filed online. It well, used to be filed online. Now it's going to take longer. Instead of being done automatically online, it might take up to seven days or even longer uh, by submitting it to the Department of Labor. Um, but now, you know, what, what, why doesn't the employer file the LCA? Do, do, you, do you know? Have you thought about it? Have you analyzed it? I know you kind of do it because somebody sticks it under your nose or you just sign it. But basically, you want to ensure that wages and working conditions, it's similar to the labor certification, but different. But basically, that wages are not being depressed by hiring the foreign worker and that you ensure that the foreign worker is not being exploited. So it's sort of the Department of Labor trying to be protective of the U.S. labor force. And of course, the employer makes a specific representation, including agreeing to pay the Department of Labor mandated prevailing wage whether it's an hourly rate or the salaried rate, and that the conditions under which the foreign worker is hired and will be employed will be similar to that of other regular U.S. workers. Now, how many of you have really been reading every little fine print on the LCA? Whether you realize it or not, these documents, as you know, and as I've mentioned several times before in all of our conferences, most of the employer documents are signed under penalty of perjury. And the representation that you as an employer is making on the LCA when you sign an H-1 petition, when you file that petition, is 
primarily six or seven representations, namely that you agree to pay the higher of the prevailing wage or the actual wage, that you, you're, you provide, will provide equal benefit to all of your workers, equal working conditions to all, that there's no strike or lockout, and that if there is any kind of a union at your facility, at the manufacturing plant or company, that you will provide the LCA notice to them, and the LCA copy was provided to the H-1B workers. So remember, you need to provide that. And finally, that there are additional attestations that apply for H-1B dependent employers or for willful violators, which you know are now being separated. So we have a whole bunch of rules that apply. You know H-1Bs can be for part-time or full-time employment. We can use a range as long as the lowest range is within the labor wage. And if you don't have enough work, there are different options to pursue, including part-time options, et cetera, et cetera, which I know those of you who've attended some of our incredibly wonderful um, employer teleconferences or meetings have heard of the different kinds of strategies and options which are perfectly legal and permissible. It is not finding a loophole in the law. It is perfectly legal to do that. Um, and again, the benefits that you offer, like health, life, disability, must be similar to what you offer your U.S. workers and your foreign workers. Um, of course, as you know, you can never expect DH1 employer, the employee, I mean. As an employer, you cannot expect the employee to ever pay the ACQUIA training fee, the 750 or 1500 fee, or force them to sign some kind of a penalty clause other than liquidated damages. You cannot say, I'm going to slap a penalty on if you quit. Um, because usually that's the way the system works, but you can certainly reimburse for out-of-pocket expenses you may have incurred as an employer, um, and you can never allow the H-1 worker's salary to be below the prevailing wage. Uh, we can get into far more details. Again, I'm doing a very, very broad overview. Um, if you ever terminate the worker, of course, you realize you have to pay at least the one-way return ticket home for the principal H-1 employee, and again, there are exceptions and there are rules and there are gray areas, um, but the reason I'm going over this quick overview is to sort of lay the foundation so that when Aaron and Pam go over the actual Department of Labor investigations and the compliance and the LCA and H-1 records, it will sort of make a little bit of sense. So, Pam, uh, can you give us a little bit of an overview for the employer on what kind of public records are required to be maintained by an H-1 employer to either deal with or respond with and uh, to, come to satisfy the Department of Labor compliance requirements. Thank you, Sheila. The actual requirements for a public access file are pretty straightforward. What people run into problems with is they don't read all the fine print. So the first thing is there has to be actually a copy of the certified labor condition application it needs to be signed and maintained in the public access file. Then the next thing is there needs to be uh, a statement regarding the rate of pay for the H-1B worker. This is their current wage that they're being paid. If, they, if that wage changes, then that information needs to get updated in that file. Again, this is one of those details that sometimes employers forget about. The next thing is separate from that, there has to be a description or summary of the actual wage system. This is 
what methodology the employer uses to figure out their wages for their employees, how they calculate things in order to determine what an individual is going to be paid. Um, and so uh, what employers uh, frequently miss out there is the factors that they use in making that determination. Is it based on education, experience? Does it play out uh, across the board in their company? How does the prevailing wage fit in there? So it's important that the employer, if they haven't already set up a system for determining wages within their company, they come up with one that's standard and identify what the factors are for that. Now the next thing there is the prevailing wage rate. Where did the employer figure that out? The employer needs to keep a copy of what that source is. It could be that they actually got a prevailing wage determination from the state workforce agency. It could be a copy of the printout from the online wage survey that's uh, maintained by the Department of Labor. It could be an alternative wage survey, a private survey that they've obtained. Whatever it is, they need to keep a copy of that in there. The problem that some employers run into is that when they're using those wage surveys, they're listing the lowest level across the board. They're not giving thought to what the minimum requirements are for that position. And that's coming back to, um, to bite employers later on during investigations. You can't just say level one because you like the level one wage. There has to be a rationale for determining what the level is that you're using. The next part that a lot of employers run into uh, as a problem is there's notice that has to happen. Um, and it can take place in a couple ways. Either the employer can uh, print up a posting notice that includes all of the required information and all the various attestation about the position, or they can actually post the physical LCA. The problem that a lot of employers run into is that the posting doesn't necessarily take place at the location where the person is working, especially with roving employees. And I think we're going to talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But the Department of Labor does require that the posting take place at the actual worksite location. So that's a, another place that employers actually run into a lot of problems. Okay. So, so let me understand. You're saying all of these are actually the required documents to be available not just to the Department of Labor but to the public? Correct. Meaning any other employee can come in and ask to review this? Correct. Anybody can come in because it's presumably public record. These are public records. They need to be available. If someone asks to see them, they can see them. Well, that doesn't sound so exciting, I'm sure, for most employers, but the law is the law. Correct. So the next thing that has to be included in this public access file is a summary of the benefits that the employer is offering um, to its employees. And if there's a difference between the, um, offer, the benefits offered to U.S. workers and the H-1B uh, workers, they need to explain um, why that differentiation exists, how it, how it is made. Um, the next thing is, in some cases, the employer undergoes a corporate change at some point, uh, a merger, an acquisition, um, or a dissolution of some sort. If there is a situation where you have a successor and interest in entity, there needs to be a statement from that new successor entity stating that it's taking over all the obligations, liabilities, and undertakings of the LCAs, along with a list of all the LCAs that are affected. Um, if, uh, if the employer is, in some cases, um, the employer will use 
the definition of a single employer under the Internal Revenue Code, um, when they're making the determination about whether or not the company is H-1B dependent, it's a very, very small minority of companies that this applies to, but if your company is using that single def- that single employer definition when you're determining your dependency status, then you actually have to include um, a list of all those entities. Okay. Um, Aaron, if I can now jump to you to re- ask you, what are the kinds of additional records which are required for H-1 dependent employers or willful violators? Fortunately, they've separated the two in the latest versions of the LCA forms and the retention of records. Well, it's funny. After Pam has just gone through such an extensive list, it's amazing to say, hey, you mean there's even more records that we have to retain mm. for, for these types of situations for H-1B dependent and willful violators? Well, the answer is yes. There is more records that you would have to uh, we would have to retain. Uh, some of the records would include evidence of the recruitment um, that you made recruitment efforts to find uh, qualified U.S. workers, uh, additional attestations from secondary employer sites. So, for example, if you're doing from if you have mid vendors that are placing your client at a client location, you need the attestation from the mid vendors and the client location that you're not displacing qualified U.S. workers. And if any employees are exempt uh, from the H-1B dependent requirements, you would need to maintain a list of the exempt employees. So we've pretty much covered the uh, covered the the public records that are required. But you'd say, now that I know what public records are required for my labor condition application, for my, uh, to, for, to maintain for my H-1B, where do I keep them? How do I retain them? What do I do with them? I've got them, but what, what do I do with them? Well, generally speaking, the records, including the labor condition application the, and the payroll, can all be kept at the U.S. principal place of business or location of employment. So you have two options. You can either do it at the location where the person is actually performing the employment or you can do it at the company's principal place of business. It would be a big problem for most consulting companies to do it in the workplace of employment because obviously there are multiple contracts all across the United States. Correct. So mostly they would probably look to do it at their principal or main or main office. I would imagine that would make the most sense in those types of situations. Uh, the LCA, so we said where do you need to keep it. Now the question is how long do you need to keep it perhaps? Well, LCA records, there's two ways that you can look at it. You could either do it for one year beyond the last date of the H- that the H-1B worker is employed or one year from the date that the LCA is due to expire if the worker, if the worker, if, uh, if the worker is not currently employed or is not employed, whichever is longer. So those are the two options to determine how long you'd be required to keep the LCA and records. And that's for the LCA records. And what about for the payroll records? What are the time frames? Well, the time frames for payroll records would be three years from the date of the creation of the record. And if there's an enforcement action, Pam talked about if there's an active investigation, you really need to keep those records indefinitely at least until the, um, until the investigation or until the enforcement effort is actually completed. Okay. I know one of the issues that we get asked all the time, and I know every single one of the three of us and every person practically is asked, especially, as I said, consulting companies, employees are moving all the time or they're roving employees, as we use that term. People ask all the time, when do I, do I have to file an H-1B amendment? Can I just file an LCA? Why do I need to file and spend the money on an amendment? 
And the answer, there isn't really anything in the statute of regulations. It's based really on USCIS policy guidance. And according to their memo, if there's a geographic location change only, with no other change in the terms and conditions of employment and the duties and the salary, if everything else is the same other than the lo location, then the employer may file a new LCA as long as it is filed and certified by the Department of Labor prior to the employee starting work in the new location. On the other hand, if the employer moves the employee and then says, oops, forgot to file that LCA, guess what? Now you not only need to file the LCA, you also need to file that H-1B amendment, pay the filing fees, pay the legal fees if necessary, in that case, and you don't have to wait till it's approved. You can file it under the AZ-21H1B portability, file it, and the employee can then move. Also, of course, if there's any kind of a material change in salary or job duties, et cetera, then an H-1B amendment is required. And obviously, if you're not sure what to do or when it applies or if you're concerned about issues or you're concerned about complaints, it's certainly advisable for you to consult with an experienced and knowledgeable attorney uh, to determine when an amendment or, or amendment H-1B petition is required. And, of course, we are certainly available here, the incredible firm and the incredible attorneys we have to guide, guide you on this process. Aaron, coming back to the LCA and public access file compliance issues, what would you recommend an employer need to do in order to uh, satisfy the compliance because this is sort of the key issue for companies? Well, Sheila, it's funny you mentioned about the roving employee and the issues that come up with that. I see that happens a lot. I see also with public access files, because of the amount of detail that's involved in maintaining the file and in actually keeping it and complying with the rule, I see a lot of people who are trying to do the right thing to the best of their ability come to a funny place. So the first thing that I would probably recommend would be to consult a competent and experienced immigration attorney and not just tooting our own horn, but because you want to make sure that any procedure and system that you have in place is correct. So you start off on the right foot or you get on the right foot and you continue on the right foot continuously throughout the remainder of the time. I would recommend people to carefully read all the attestations listed on the labor condition application on the LCA and make sure you're complying with them. Um, I would recommend that you create a public access file for each one of the H-1B workers um, and that each time a worker changes the metropolitan statistical, statistical area, the commuting distance location to work at a different location, similar to the thing that you mentioned about the roving employees, that an LCA is updated before the move takes place. I would really make sure that they had a separate checklist for maintaining the different documents that are available, public documents, documents that are needed from day one that the H-1B employee works there, and also documents that could potentially be needed for future changes and developments. Uh, finally, the best thing to do is because the rules change, the law is a living, breathing thing, and things always develop, I would recommend sending regu setting regular interval dates to look back and say, is the process I'm doing, is what I'm doing still correct? Do I need to tweak it? Do I need to develop it? Do I may need to make sure that I'm still complying with the rules? Okay. Um, so let's jump back to the Department of Labor, you know, the investigations that we're seeing of LCA compliance and H-1B. Um, 
For those who are not aware, the, the particular agency that we refer to in the Department of Labor is the ESA, or Employment Standards Administration. And also, as we've talked about earlier, the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division. And the purpose, really, of course, of the Department of Labor in general is to achieve, promote and achieve compliance with labor standards in the United States, but to protect the U.S. worker and to prevent, presumably, the exploitation of foreign workers, but to protect U.S. workers. Sheila, I just want to jump in for one second and mention this is different from ICE Immigration Customs Enforcement that deal primarily with I-9 issues. That's correct. Completely different. We're focusing exclusively in this conference on H-1B-related issues. Okay, so now the investigation triggers. Aaron, how do these investigations triggers work? How did, what gets started? One of the most common questions we're asked all the time is, hey, how did this even get started? Why was I so unlucky to get picked? Was it an employee complaint? What happened? Can the Department of Labor do it on their own? What, what are the different ways that this actually takes place? Well, actually, there's two ways that it could potentially take place. One is a complaint followed by an aggrieved person or an organization. It doesn't necessarily have to be an employee, but many times it's a disgruntled employee. It's usually filed no later than 12 months after the timing of the alleged violation from the company. Uh, it commonly includes employers' failure to pay prevailing wage. And where we see this quite often is usually people that are benching employees in between assignments without pay. That's usually where we see violations of the prevailing wage. Also, if the violation is deemed continuous, the company could be the subject to an investigation regardless of the occurrence timing. So if something took place two years ago and they have information that there's a pattern or practice that it's routinely occurring, so even if it was in a complaint by an aggrieved person from two years ago, that can still initiate the complaint. The other way could be initiated by the Department of Labor. The initiation by the Department of Labor is conducted upon receipt of credible information from a known source. Source is likely to have um, knowledge of the employer's practices. Information obtained as a result of a different investigation that led to this particular information or information about the company, sister companies, companies that do business routinely. Those are information that they can act upon. And again, that 12-month deadline would also apply in that particular situation. So it's very interesting since the investigation can be started by either the employee or any aggrieved person, not necessarily a former employee, though often it's a former employee. Um, so even if an employee, for whatever reason, missed it for six, more than a year, more than 12 months, but woke up like a year and a half or two years later, if they call the Department of Labor, the Department of Labor could presumably now try to ask questions and um, so that the 12-month mark, even though it technically exists, could almost be, because all they're doing is sort of probing, investigating, they're not slapping a fine. So kind of get can get a little murky here. Uh, and how does this procedure actually work, Pam? I mean, it seems like, you know, maybe that can explain how this works, you know, with the probable cause or what have you. Well, first of all, the Department of Labor needs to, must determine that uh, there is reasonable cause to investigate and it's generally required to notify employer upon uh, the in initiation of investigation. What we're seeing a lot of right now is there's, an, there's a complaint by a current or former employee, and the Department of Labor starts their investigation uh, based on that complaint, and they'll start off with a limited window, say a one-year period, based off of that complaint. And they'll ask for some standard documentation that the employer is required to maintain anyways. And through the course of that investigation, 
either the, the investigation of that initial period and that initial documentation, either it'll bring it to a close or the, the Department of Labor investigator may decide to expand it to look at previous years or move it up until the present. So those investigations, they could be anywhere from 60 days to you know, a year, <laughs> maybe longer. Um, that, now, while this investigation is going on, the DOL regional, um, DOL will still certify LCAs, um, but this investigation could go on for an extended period. Um, the thing, what, what generally happens is the Department of Labor, once they decide to contact the employer, they'll either ask the employer to produce the records or they'll actually send an officer to the office of the employer to actually inspect those records. Frequently it will be they'll want to see the public access file records, they'll want to see um, the employer's payroll records for that time period, Often they want to see the initial offers of employment, um, and then beyond that, they may start asking for um, names, addresses, job titles, um, telephone numbers, social security information, rates of pay, hours worked for all of their employees. So it can expand fairly quickly. Pam, I have a quick question. I have some employers that say to me, isn't it wise for me just to tell the Department of Labor, come on over, look at my records, because if I show that I have open arms and I'm inviting them in, they'll see that, oh, he's probably good and everything will be okay. Is that a good strategy to use? Uh, not necessarily. It really depends on the state of your records. The best thing you can do is um, to speak to an attorney and uh, have them inspect your records and see if they're actually in the good state that you think they are. Um, before just handing things over. It's also uh, generally a good rule of thumb to give what a person asks, not necessarily more than what they ask for. And uh, that's the point, is a lot of employers and companies think, oh, I have nothing to hide. Why should I bother? I'll just show them. I'll invite them into my office, into my company, and have them review it. And we find that some of the biggest problems are when you try to give more information. It's the common rule that we tell everybody, always answer questions to the point Spam just pointed out, just give them exactly what they want, exactly what they ask for. Don't be over-enthusiastic and volunteer all this extra information because a lot of times that extra piece of information is what gets a person into deep trouble. And next thing you're sunk so deep into it, you have now dug your own grave, and it's really a big problem, um, even with a terrific attorney, to try and dig you out, you know, help you back out, because really once you've shown them a whole bunch of papers, including forms and documents where you've not violated with the law, even if it's unintentional, remember, these are not intentional crimes, so just not maintaining the paperwork the way the law requires, it's a violation in and of itself. You know, and it reminds me of something my grandfather used to say when we were growing up. He would say, even a fish wouldn't get into trouble if he just learned how to keep his mouth closed. <laughs> so in this situation, you want to give what you're asked for, but you really don't want to volunteer too much more. Oh, you were talking about the fishing angle that he would <laughs> never get caught. I see, I see. Uh, unless you're that huge uh, killer shark that swallows him full. <laughs> this is true. And, and sometimes I wonder with the federal government and the Department of Labor, if they are, they can just swallow up companies and individuals, especially in this economy. Okay, so... Um, we are now going to jump into possible penalties, and we never, ever, ever want to scare anybody because the truth is, you know, you want to be careful and want to be cautious and you want to know what's going on. But it's important to understand the, what the possible penalties are and also how the government is using 
those penalties to scare us as employers when we're sponsoring and filing H-1 petitions. So, Aaron, would you just sort of go over a brief overview of how this works? Sure, no problem. The one thing I want to add before I jump into the possible penalties is just that I have seen remedial action helps affect the type of penalties that you'll receive, and I've also seen cooperation helps affect the type of penalties that you receive. So while I'm not a big believer in volunteering additional information, if the Department of Labor does give you a list of possible violations and they're talking about what you can do to take remedial actions or to correct something, I'm all for making the appropriate effort to get yourself in a good place. Cooperation really is a very good currency to trade in. Uh, The first thing I would tell you is that penalties range depending on the nature of the violation. So they can go for something as, as, I don't want to say small, because payment of back wages, if you go back a year or two years, if people were benching without pay, depending on the size of the company, that can be substantial. But from the other penalties perspective, that actually may not be too bad and something you may be able to work with negotiating to um, issues from debarment from LCA filings uh, and thereby uh, preventing H-1B approvals. But is that really so bad in this economy if the employer is not filing a lot of petitions? It it potentially now, with with the way the economy is, is potentially not as bad at first glance. But we're all very optimistic that the economy is growing and that the economy is changing. And to be hamstrung that you can't file the extensions of your H-1Bs that are already in existence and already placed at client sites. Ah, now that's important. Could okay. really be something that would impact you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on to fines. I think fines could take place, especially if you did not or refused to take remedial actions. And finally, there's a, there's a penalty that can include up to five years of imprisonment. And I know that none of us look good in those orange jumpsuit suits or the stripes that accompany those, uh, those wonderful uh, arrangements that the federal government is kind enough to make. By the way, these penalties are heightened if, you're a willful re- if you make willful misrepresentations. So if you think you can kind of, I don't want to say lie your way out of it, but maybe just fudge the truth a little here, fudge the truth a little there, hope that they're not going to expand the investigation like Pam was discussing, uh, that's generally not a really good way to go. So what, what's considered may generally a willful sort of misrepresentation? Is it when the employer, for example, signs many LCAs or many H-1 petitions? What's considered willful, Aaron or Pam? I think one thing that can be considered a willful misrepresentation, if you've had previous or past um, incidents where you violated benching without pay, failure to update LCAs, failure to keep your public access files, and then they come back for a follow-up investigation and you haven't done anything to change it. I think that's potentially something that can be Because now you have, you're supposed to have a clear understanding of what the law is. You, also, I think what you see a lot of in terms of this willful represent, misrepresentation is where there is no connection to the location that's listed on the LCA where the LCA is for Ohio, but all of the people are working in California. And there's nothing, there's no documentation supporting those people working in California. Something like that is is willful. Deliberate and willful, yeah. Okay, so once, depending on what the Department of Labor finally slaps on, uh, you as an employer, or presumably even the employee, or any interested party, is actually allowed to say, you know what, I'm not happy. Thank goodness for the Constitution and thank goodness for your rights to keep appealing this uh, into infinity. You can request a hearing before the ALJ or the administrative law judge. And if you don't request the hearing, obviously the finding or the decision of the Department of Labor becomes final. But if the hearing is requested, 
Generally, it's held within approximately four months or 120 days of the Department of Labor investigator's determination. And the ALJ generally issues some sort of a decision, again, within the 120 days after the hearing. The, and the ALJ will obviously either they will agree with the Department of Labor, they will either deny the case, they will reverse it, or they will amend or modify it in some manner. Obviously, we all want the perfect modification where there's no penalties and nothing for us. Uh, and again, that decision can again be determined. That determination can again be appealed to the next level to the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, and, let's, and Aaron? Oh, just real quickly, one thing about the ALJ that we find interesting is each step along the way, they seem to give you an opportunity to take remedial action, even paying the back wages, sometimes very expensive. But definitely there are opportunities, if you're not a willful violator, to be able, if you didn't make willful misrepresentations, to really try to take a remedial action and fix it. One thing that I've noticed is when a case progresses, even to the ALJ, that nonetheless, with the DOL attorney, you still have an opportunity to revisit and to see if you can settle it before it actually goes through the administrative law judge procedure. So each step, there's an opportunity to try to work things out. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, all this fine and dandy, and I know we're very co- conscious of time. Uh, generally, with our teleconferences, we always like to have them for between 30 and 45 minutes. I think we're doing just great. So before we wrap it up, I definitely want to have Pam at least give some guidance to employers on what kinds of preventative measures a- an employer or an, an H-1B employer or a company can take to minimize or hopefully eliminate any kind of a Department of Labor investigation and if there is ever an audit to be able to submit beautiful, wonderfully maintained, perfect, impeccable files, how would you suggest, any ideas or suggestions that you can give us, Pam? Well, the first thing is I would say take the, take the process very seriously. H-1Bs are not just rubber-stamped applications. They have a whole host of requirements, and it's very important that you take every single requirement seriously. Um, I was speaking with a Department of Labor uh, investigator a month or so ago, and she was mentioning how she sees a difference between the files that are maintained based on H-1Bs that were just done in-house and the ones that were done by reputable attorneys. There's definitely a difference in the level of documentation, and those are the cases that generally go along better. Um, Associated with that, you know, don't engage in the known violations. Department of Labor, USCIS, um, H-1Bs were not designed for benching. H-1Bs were designed for people to come here and work under the terms of their H-1B. Um, So you would suggest that maybe some sort of an H-1 amendment where somebody is being paid very high wages when they work and very, very low or no wages when they're being benched to rather switch to a regular proper salary which is uniform so that there's no problem? Yes, these are de- there are definitely ways of dealing with um, highs and lows in, in projects. Um, and that's something that, again, can be talked with with an attorney about what are options for handling that. Also, um, you know, another option is if the person is not working, they always have the option of... Uh, you know, going outside of the country. If they're not here, then there isn't a, an obligation under the LCA. Uh, the next thing is, like Aaron said earlier, look at what you're attesting to on those LCAs. You're signing those under penalty of perjury, and you're making a lot of, of, of statements in them about non-displacement of workers, about wages and benefits that you'll be paying. So take it seriously. Read through the attestations. 
The next thing is, um, along with, we talked about what are required for the public access files. So you should make every effort to comply with those LCA and H-1B requirements by setting up standard processes inside your company. Um, internal processes for taking care of the postings required, uh, obtaining all of the necessary documentation and attestations, and then creating an internal process for monitoring those H-1Bs. Make sure that you're getting proper wage determinations for your positions. Identify what the real, actual minimum requirements for the positions are and stick with them. Those should be the basis for determining what your prevailing wage is. And then keep records of your payments. Um, uh, frequently, in, an in, in the initial stages of an investigation, Department of Labor will ask to see your payroll records for a, a one-year period. And they'll very quickly be able to identify where there are gaps in payment, where the payments suddenly rise and fall. Those are things that they're going to be looking at. The next thing is make sure that your public access files are complete and in order and that they're properly maintained for the necessary period of time so that if the Department of Labor calls up and says, I'm coming to see you, show me your public access files, you'll be able to immediately show them and show that you are in compliance. Along with that, you should conduct period, periodic um, audits of your public access files by a qualified immigration attorney who's aware of all of the various developments in immigration law and any changing requirements by the Department of Labor. That way, if you need to change your process, to change your procedures, you'll be able to do so within a reasonable period of time. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm sure all of these sort of suggestions to try and minimize any kind of damage or to prevent hopefully any damage from occurring is always much appreciated. Again, to emphasize, if either you are having an issue as an employer, either in terms of concerned about an audit, an investigation, a knock on the door, any kind of an, uh, concern about this, you just want to make sure that all your ducks are in a row. Um, it's always wise to try and have someone, whether it's the Murthy Law Firm or somebody else, we certainly have a lot of experience and an incredible team here in a whole department to be able to guide and assist you in setting it up and reviewing it. And we now actually have set up a very inexpensive flat fee basis where we can streamline it and do an incredible job for you at a very, very competitive rate, give you A-plus service at a C-minus uh, fee. It's like going to a five-star hotel to stay but paying a one-star rate. Hey, it doesn't get better than that, right? <laughs> um, anyway... Uh, on behalf of uh, Aaron Finkelstein, Pam Janice, and myself, we thank you so much for attending today. For those who want to see their wonderful background and resumes of each of our incredible attorneys, they're always available on our website. I'd just like to focus our limited time and effort and energy in giving you as many tips and giving you as much useful information for free as we can. Again, to conclude, these are copyrighted materials of the Murphy Law Firm. And we would strongly encourage you to comply with the law and not uh, copy any of these materials or duplicate it by in any manner whatsoever. Thank you so much for attending. We look forward to continuing to guide and help you and your company. And it's always an honor and a pleasure for us to represent you, your company, uh, and to help you to continue to succeed and live the American dream. Have a great day.